we are live. The the streaming software told me, oh, you've got seven minutes. Yeah. Are you sure you want to go live? I'm like, yes, I'm making my own decisions. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hello, everybody. And welcome to season two, episode 12 of History's Greatest Idiots, the podcast in which we take you back through the annals of history and give you all sorts of amazing lessons from stupid people so that you can uh, learn from their mistakes and never repeat those mistakes again. But who we're getting with human and humans making mistakes is fun and entertaining. And uh, we've got, boy, have we got some good ones for you today. Joining me as ever is my amazing co-host, Derek. Derek, how are you doing and how are things over there with you? Uh, things are fantastic. I'm I'm wrapping up a, a full week of vacation where I did wow. uh, not much of anything. I wrote, I worked on some of my screenplays, finished a short. Great. So yeah, that, but That's... I'm I'm relaxed and and, and ready. Isn't that good? <laughs> That's just like that that best feeling. Like sometimes you come back from. I, I think it might be because I do. I've done quite a lot of traveling in my life, and you come back from a holiday like that, and you're like, oh man, I need another fucking holiday now. But you know, like, especially if you've been flying or something. But oh. yeah, I'm really glad you feel like relaxed and stuff. There's something about like, when you get to a certain age, just like stopping everything that you're doing. And then you realize that, oh, God, I am tired. I needed this. Yeah, it you know? gets away from you. And you're like, oh, yeah, oh, no, I'm fine. On. Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. It's that male thing of like, oh, I'll be all right. It's okay. Yeah, it's carrying on. You just accept it. And then you slow down or stop. And you're like, oh, my God, I was tired. <laughs> yeah i needed this so badly i, um, I had uh somebody i worked with reminded or uh told, told me i was like that and they were like hey you know boxer from animal farm hmm. just keep working just work harder you know <laughs> that's me and, yeah uh, that's... now i've had vacation and <laughs> now i just want to rest rest more yeah. rest longer <laughs> i know yeah it's uh it's it's i guess the the real secret to life is balancing that existence but like at the same time like having a week off even if it's like a long weekend, sometimes you can be like, oh, that was great. Um, I had the long weekend and we went to the Cotswolds, which is like a very picturesque part of England. And that whole time I was like, I'm enjoying my sleep. And then we went and we had a, the week away with my family in North Wales. And um, and I was sleeping all the time. It was great. Uh, <laughs> just relax. So, yeah. Just like going on the beach, having lovely food and then just sleeping. That's what I want to do. I want to get Welcome to the beach. Forties. <laughs> yeah, go on a beach, chill out, have some nice food, nice drink, and just sleep. You know, maybe watch something yeah. on Netflix. Who knows? Uh, so yeah, but um, so you've had a really nice week off. I'm really pleased. Are things all right with everyone over in Arizona? Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. for the most part, I I I. I haven't been around anybody all week. It's been fantastic. <laughs> I have no idea how it's going here. Could be yeah. on fire all around me and I wouldn't know. <laughs> That's good. Is it? You were able to detach yourself from the situation. So, yeah, I, I had a similar thing. I've got um, like a three day weekend. Now. I've got to get a bunch of it's not really through choice. Like on Monday, I have to go to the hospital to get a bunch of tests done because of Crohn's disease stuff. But at the same time, it's like, oh, I don't have to wake up at like X certain That's... time in the morning you know and like i i can take the time to do something else while i'm waiting in a hospital and having loads of work done you know because that takes out of you so i'd like i have the morning and the early afternoon to do that and then i have hours in the hospital so well <laughs> at least the first half didn't suck First half will not suck. The second half will literally suck blood out of me. So that's oh, going to be fun. Lovely, yes. Um, 
<laughs> anyway, so Derek, now that you've had a nice, relaxing holiday, can you tell us who your chosen idiot for this week is? Um, well, the time away from work got me thinking about uh, hard workers and people working hard, and then that wandered me into sweatshops and all that Ooh. good things. And I, th <laughs> I think it's safe to say we can all pretty much put aside any sort of political ideology and stand together to stop human trafficking. Oh, right? Jesus, yeah. Now, the thing is, is over here, when you say human trafficking, it automatically turns into a conversation about satanic cults, drinking the blood of babies, or sex tourism. Yeah, or some sort of like illegal immigrant conversation, potentially, something See, like that. It it doesn't talk like it doesn't go that way too oh, often, but okay. I think it should. At least it it mm. hasn't in the conversations that I've heard or had about it in, sure. in my life. It's mm. always the wild ass combination of uh pizza gate and sex tourism and yeah and down here it's like ms13 kidnapping ladies and putting them to work in drug dens and things like that so Jeez. i guess it's like labor um but the human trafficking side of it it's like a huge business and believe it or not like it reaches into mainstream retailers wow. and in, oh, in this yeah. in this sort of uh, in in this story, mm. it it totally does that. Major retailers like Walmart, Target, J.C. Penney, wow. um, some big American retailers took part in buying products from this gentleman's sweatshop. Oof. Which brings me to um, <clears throat> the gentleman I'm covering today. Which let's see, he is actually responsible for the. Well, he was the target of the largest human trafficking investigation in the United States history wow. um, and was responsible for holding over 300 immigrant workers and indentured servants uh, to work on garments and clothing. That's now, awful. much like humankind from the beginning of human history, it's it's all about getting the, the labor force, human resources, profit. Yeah, sure. um, and you, you want to get others to do the work for you. And if you can get them to do it for free, that's the best kind, I yeah. guess. Except for it sucks when you're the other people. Exactly. Um, despite the laws that we've created to try and protect against this, hmm. um, minimum wages, it they still get around it. And yeah. this guy did it on U.S. soil. Um, wow. He's a South Korean businessman that was responsible for holding over 300 victims in forced servitude from 1998 to 2001. So it wasn't all that long ago. No, it wasn't. And like for three whole years in in a digital era, no less, which is kind of surprising. It, wow. And it's funny because it was in the digital era and it was a damn note that took him down. But I'll get to that. <laughs> <clears throat> they were passing notes like yeah anyway so <laughs> most of the workers were vietnamese and chinese nationals who were lured to the u.s um in the were with with the promise of a steady stream of money of that they could send back to support their families start a new life have a, mm -hmm. a better life in america and yeah, that's how most human trafficking stories seem to start i think you know see it's it sucks because you always want to do better and yeah, it, it cool. feels like it could be super easy to get 
tricked into it without realizing what you're yeah. doing if you're not careful. And there's exactly. some there's some red flags that this guy throws out uh, right away. Uh, the gentleman I have for you today is Kil Soo Lee, a right. South Korean businessman and sweatshop proprietor that was sentenced to 40 years for his role in the largest human trafficking operation on U.S. soil. Wow. It all started out uh, back in the 1990s when America was pushing real hard for American-made products, and it was kind of an, a gimmick to buy American. Look for that. Yes, I remember made, that. Made in America tag. Help mm -hmm. the U.S. economy. Help the American workers and the American businessman. Sure. And uh, it's easy enough. You go down to your Walmart or your Target or whatever retailer you shop at and mm -hmm. buy American. Except yeah. for Lee was behind one of the businesses that was putting out clothing with a lot of those made in America tags on it. And he had this ruthless business plan that uh, it unfolded in three steps. He built his factory on a remote island in American Samoa uh, on unincorporated U.S. territory. So it keeps the eyes off of him a little bit. Smart. Jesus. And he's only about 2,300 miles south of Honolulu. So wow. still within supply chain. Um, yeah. Cross-Pacific supply chains you know you're talking about a vital shipping lane there that's and, yeah and he recruited his the the skilled garment workers from vietnam and china who were mostly young women um to guarantee the job he required that they pay a down payment of as much as six thousand dollars for each one of the workers so that's right this son of he got him to pay him to be his slave that's awful. And I've never heard of that before. Yeah. That, that reminds me an awful lot of when people are... Who's that baseball player who fled Cuba and was like... He, he Was it baseball? I'm sure it was baseball. Anyway, he fled Cuba with like a boxer who was also fleeing Cuba and a couple of other people and he had to pay like a bunch of different people to get him out of the country because it failed like four times. And then during his playing career... He had to be really careful where he was moving around and his team had to hire extra security because he ran away from the people he paid thousands of dollars to get him to America. And they oh. now wanted like 50% of his contract. I can't it's, remember the guy's name. And it's and it's weird how we like let ourselves be pressured that way too. Even like yeah. this dude's a, a baseball player making yeah. tons of money and he's got somebody that's like, hey, we're going to do something, this, that, or the other thing exactly. and you're going to do exactly what we tell you. Yeah, and like the, the, the FBI got involved and people tried to track them down. He was like, you won't find them. They'll, they're ghosts and they can still threaten us. So yeah, that's... But I, th I think you hear that a lot of like human trafficking when people are escaping... To situations we hear it a lot in the UK. I know Francis Ngannou, the current UFC heavyweight champion, had a similar thing when he was trying to get to the US, where he had to pay a bunch of dodgy people to get him to a certain point. Um, right. We get it a lot in the UK where people, at various different nationalities, are paying thousands of pounds to you know gangsters on the coast of like France and um, uh, you know kind of. Holland and places like that, where they're they're basically paying thousands of pounds so that they can get across the channel in really shit boats, and a lot of them die on the way. That so. sucks. I know it happens a lot. Well, you know, you know and I so. guess I, I, if you look at it, a lot of the times with the southern immigrants from Mexico and Venezuela and South America coming up across um, into like Arizona, 
are fleeing like gang violence and yeah. they're paying coyotes money to get them over here. But this guy's saying that it's a job. Pay me for a job. And yes, I, I was kind of looking at it like, why in the fuck would you pay to get a job? I know. I know. I guess it's the about, promise of other things, isn't it? Yeah. Well, and they're desperate and they're running away yeah. from bad lives and they want mm. to, to bring their family out of poverty in yeah. some countries where, well, Poverty is just kind of the way of life. Yeah. It's the and, original American dream, really. You know, you can thrive here, sort of thing. And yeah. And honestly, though, if anybody's desperate and looking for work, just control your, your own destiny. And even in yeah. regular labor wage situations, just know your worth and, Absolutely. Uh, you know, feel Stick good about yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Quite anyway, nice. Back to this asshole's plan. So. <laughs> He built the the factory in American Samoa in unincorporated territory so he could get away from it. But it was still on U.S. territory, so he could use the Made in America plan. He's recruiting these skilled garment workers from uh, bad situations and getting them to pay him up front. And then when they got here, uh, he put them on grueling schedules in really shitty conditions and paid them next to nothing. Sure, yeah. Which is weird to be paid at all, but in this situation, mm. like a lot of those, they pay them enough to be able to buy the overpriced stuff from their commissary, the you know right. the company store sort of deal, but yeah, real horrid level. Um, yeah. When when they talked about rising up or step stepped out of line, he threatened them with violence, uh, hit them with beatings. Some of them were starved. Oh. They were uh, arrested. He'd have them deported. They were sexually assaulted oh my and forced to, to debt repayment schemes for the ones, you know, that couldn't pay up front. They got indebted before they got here, indentured wow. servitude sort of thing. And all of that was surrounded by this gated compound with razor wire and guards that patrolled with uh, plastic pipes. Plastic pipes? So they didn't yeah. even have guns. They were just like... Oh hit you with a truncheon sort of yeah. thing but i wow. i mean yeah i'll get to a real bad thing that somebody did with a pipe here in just a minute oh, um so the fence encircled the whole compound with razor wire there was a curfew in place a lot of the workers were malnourished and some of the the seamstresses actually stopped having menstrual cycles due to oh my god the living conditions and abuse um hey <laughs> <laughs> So some of the, the dorms lacked running water. They mm. reeked of human waste and uh, body odor. And he controlled all aspects of their daily life, including how much they ate and uh, when they slept, when they worked. And they were expected to produce. And he maintained the control with beatings and deportations and arrests. And in case you're wondering, anybody, uh, it's a sweatshop owner, uh, Toastazoid. Yes, you already yes. told him. Um, the companies that Mr. Lee was pushing his his stuff to were uh, Walmart, and it, the specific label was Beach Cabana label, Target oh. under the Pro Spirit label, Sears under David Taylor, David Pfizer wow. Sportswear under MV Sport, and J.C. Penney under Arizona, amongst others. Um, the the dark underbelly of that sweatshop came to light when one of the employees that was returning from a visit uh, of coworkers that were jailed in another location 
dropped a, an SOS note out the window of a company car, and the note was found and passed on to the Department of Labor. Wow. Then they launched an investigation and levied some fines and ordered to pay them back wages. But since he was strapped for cash, this Lee feller, and he couldn't pay them, the Department of Labor wrote the checks. And when the the workers got the checks from the Department of Labor for their back wages, Kill Sue Lee fucking took their checks and deported the ones that wouldn't give them the money that the Department of Labor had paid them. Oh, my God. That's disgraceful. That is awful. Uh, things started to heat up again. They were rising up against him. And in November of 2000, Lee ordered his guards to beat or kill any workers that weren't producing clothes fast enough. And a mass oh. in t- attack ensued where one woman had her eye gouged out with one of oh those plastic pipes. Jeez. Uh, another man uh, was beaten with it and lost uh, his hearing, ruptured his eardrum. Um, oh, my God. The word got out of those beatings, and in February of 2001, FBI agents in Honolulu launched the massive investigation that led to the, his arrest. And in 2002, uh, oh, excuse me, in 2000, later in 2001, they went on trial. In 2002, two of his uh, immediate accomplices, a manager and a head garment worker, pled guilty to trafficking charges and were sentenced to 70 and 51 months in jail, respectively. Okay. And as the head of the entire operation, he was the third and last individual to be convicted on the case. On uh, February 21st in Hawaii, he was found guilty on 14 out of 18 counts against him. And in June of 2003, the Justice Department announced that he was sentenced to 40 years in prison, for his involvement in involuntary servitude, extortion, and money laundering. Uh, he's, he's actually one of the few cases of an employer that is actually prosecuted for human trafficking. Wow. That's... Uh, yes, yeah, kind of a dark story, but one unfortunate takeaway um, is that like nobody's been holding the major corporations accountable yeah. for their role that they're playing and being the final beneficiary of operations like Lee. And in the wake of those cases and criticism, American companies are distancing themselves from some of the manufacturers and vendors. Mm -hmm. But there's evidence that shows that some of them, including the pro spirit label uh, shipped the materials and uh, they, they, they were involved directly without yes. vendors in between with this Daewoo factory for uh, Mr. Lee. Um, after his sentencing, the Attorney General Alberto R. Gonzalez said that human trafficking is more evil, is a moral evil that is nothing less than modern-day slavery, and today's sentencing concludes the largest human trafficking case ever prosecuted by the Department of Justice and is another example for our commitment to protect the civil rights of traffic victims. Uh, after that case... They increased the prosecution on human trafficking, and since January of 2001, they've opened up over 400 investigations and prosecuted 215 traffickers, which it's surprisingly triple the amount of uh, prosecutions that they had engaged in in the four years before. So just in that one year, beginning of 2001, it went up after this. So if there's anything to take away from it, this dude's in jail. Mm-hmm. 
the government's investigating more, although Good. a lot of it turns out to be harassment and deportation of illegals that are just trying to, uh, well, you know, yeah. like Sheriff Joe, the, the roundups of yes. workers. Anyway, yeah. uh, what I hope turns to be a positive end of this story here is that he's in jail and more than 200 of the workers from his family were are from his factory were actually able to stay in the United States on special work visas and are actually still here making a, a life for themselves and doing well from, according to the Department of Labor. Right. And okay. So that's that's a good thing. <laughs> uh, ultimately, that's that's really really good. It's it's such it, it's so it's so sad. I I, I have a big problem with uh, the Department of Labor in this one. Um, you know, someone was brave enough. The very fact that they had to smuggle a kind of a a, a cry for help. Mm -hmm. out of this compound um and you know that should have kind of raised some red flags with them they should have been like okay this is bigger than us this isn't just about labor the fact that they're having to smuggle notes out right kind of should have meant right we need to get the fbi involved in this like first thing needs to be involved the the kind of they could have seized his assets i guess and then like right we'll reimburse the workers for the money that you owe them if if that was a possible thing or or sell the goods somehow and sell them an ethical price so that these people could actually earn some of the money back from the profits, right? That would have made sense. But for them to just issue fines and yeah. then not like make sure that the people were given the checks, because like they must have known, like on the letter, it must have said, we're kept in a compound, we're not allowed out, we're, you know, we're barely making any money. Like that shit, they should I would have known think that, that they would have put that in the note. You think so, right? Like we we're we're in a compound surrounded by we're basically imprisoned here. Yeah, the, the Department of Labor should have gone on site and like directly enforced that shit. And then if they got on site and they weren't satisfied with the conditions, they should have called in the FBI immediately. But it doesn't yeah. sound like that happened. It sort of sounds like they went, ah, it's someone else's problem. Here's a fine. You right, know? and they waited for mass beatings and somebody to get their eye. They waited for somebody to lose an eye. That's fucking terrible. That like you should at that point you you have failed right as a an institution to protect these people, the Department of Labor. So that's a failure for them, and they should be ashamed of their involvement in it because they had a duty of care of these people, and they completely failed in that duty of care. Yeah. Um, as far as this guy goes, um, forty years is is right. Um, I hope he he does not return to mainstream society that is a really horrible thing I, it reminded me a little bit about 20 over 20 years ago now john pilger a journalist released a book called the new rulers of the world which was kind of like a collection of it, it, was, it was a book it was an interesting book at the time um and it was a collection of kind of articles he'd done and essays and stuff like that um john pilger just should be aware at the time i don't know if he's changed now he was about as far left as you could go without becoming stalin like even to a, a welsh socialist like me uh I, I was like holy shit this guy wants to burn the world down um and like he <laughs> he outlined um uh a, a kind of a, a sweatshop that gap were using oh. um yeah, and like you, you're the same age as me. You remember the stories of the Gap sweatshots and the places that people. I'm sure you do. Yeah. And like he was saying that they were like defecating on the floor. He posed as like a a retailer so that he could speak to upper management and see how they treated people. And they were like, 
oh, if you need a quick turnaround, you know, we can just make them work. Like they don't need breaks. They can just work and work and work until the order's fulfilled. Like as if they're machines. Yeah. And yeah. And, and when that broke, when he broke that story, I can't remember who he broke it for. It destroyed Gap's uh, stock value, reputation. And, and overnight, people like me who read the article and found out about it just stopped buying all of their products entirely. And I've never right. bought anything from them since. It It's not exclusive to Gap. Um, so, you know, uh, there are a lot of companies that have taken advantage of of poorly paid, um, you know, workers. I mean, even some of the, the retailers who are still around to this day are still using, like, Cambodian labor to make their clothes. Well, so, I mean... Look at uh, the cruise industries even engaging yes. in the labor of, you know, here's $10 for this three months. But yeah. we fed you. I know. You know? And like, it's funny. <laughs> I, sh I should mention this as well. It, it It's kind of, there are levels to this wherever you look, right? I worked when I was 18 years old. My first summer job after I graduated was, from high school was... Um, in a an American summer camp um, in Pennsylvania for the um, I won't mention the name of the organization because I'm sure it was I'm sure elements of it were probably illegal. The camp was fine, the food was disgusting, and the living conditions were appalling. Um, we were I was paid eighteen cents an hour for my work. We got one day off. Um, hmm. Even though, like, it was a Jewish camp, so, like, obviously, with a lot of the Jewish kids there, they didn't do anything over the weekend, but we still had to work, you know, which oh, I was a man. bit, like, kind of hypocritical. Um, but, yeah, I um, I made $350 that summer. Damn. Um, yeah, and there were, there were some people worse than me that worked in the kitchens who... You know, at least we slept in cabins, right? Some of the people who worked in the kitchens slept in tents the entire summer. Which Damn. Is fucked up. Yeah, I know. They didn't have like ensuite facilities like we did. I mean, our ensuite facilities were disgusting. Right. But at least there was an indoor toilet, you know? So, yeah, you weren't like working homeless. Exactly. Yeah, which is essentially what they were. And fortunately, all of the parents. Because you got big tips from the parents at the end of the summer. They were like, oh, thank you for looking after my child. Here's $150 or whatever. And oh, nice. You had all these kids. So like 14 kids, it eventually adds up and you've got enough money to pay off some of your student loan, or like save for university and then like travel around the US and see a bit of the US, which is what I did. I went to like Chicago, New York, Boston, Pennsylvania, all of these great places. Nice. But um, yeah, but like it was because I was on a, a specific visa, which meant that they could pay me whatever the fuck they wanted. Oh, so, yeah. that sucks. I know. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, this this is a situation where wages and stuff like that and exploitation is still rampant. Modern day slavery still exists. It's still a big problem all over the world. There's a huge rise in it in the UK where people are essentially kidnapping uh, people and making them work for them for like decades. These people are showing up like 30 years later. Like I've been a hostage in this house for 30 years and I've just been cleaning the whole time. It's a Harry Potter situation. You know, yeah, that's under the stairs. <laughs> so, so that shit still happens. But this guy, in terms of ratings, man, it's, it's a solid 89. Okay. Yeah, it's I'll take that. Pure, <laughs> uh, pure exploitation of the worst kind. Um, so, 
I I have no problem with an eighty nine because he doesn't seem he just didn't seem to care. He was just a bit of a a horrible no. horrible human being. Yeah, he really. made them pay him to be his slaves. He took their money when they did get reimbursed for the money that he owed mm. him anyway. Yeah, he kept all the money in house by it. having, uh, like you said, the um, the company store. So yeah, yep, yeah. What you want to buy a pack of noodles? That's like that's a dollar. Yeah, isn't it? Isn't it like fifteen cents or something? No, it's a dollar. <laughs> so it's a lot like jail, I guess. Basically, yeah, it's like the yeah. commissary in jail, isn't it? Where people like pay, they get paid peanuts, and then they have to pay through the nose just to eat decent food because the prison food is so goddamn awful. Huh. So, yeah. I think I know where we can make our clothes. Yeah. Let's Wait, make it no. an industry. Oh, that That's, shit still happens. Yeah. It's not just America. That shit happens over here as well. There are like people in with, over here. It's like a big thing is um, growing vegetables and stuff. So uh -huh. a lot of the UK prisons, some of them have got massive estates, basically. So they'll have like six acres of farmland and they will farm and farm and farm. And this food will be sold to the community but the people who have farmed it have got have been paid like like a pound a day so so yeah god it's weird how that almost seems a lot like slavery slavery yeah very okay. much so <laughs> slavery sorry to bring twist. everybody down no that's okay <laughs> it's new slavery same yeah. slavery you know different flavor but we um, paid them, sort of. Uh, we paid them, sort of, enough below the minimum wage, but we don't talk about that. But anyway, <laughs> from, from one terrible human being to another. Now, this guy is not on your, your guy's level, um, but he is the angriest human being that's ever existed. Okay. Who, and I, I think you already know who it is. I think you have a very strong suspicion who it is. He also I, wrote... Yeah. Maybe. He wrote the most depressing work of fiction ever devised by a human mind in the history okay. of existence um i'm assuming this also happens in france i need more reasons to shit on them it probably <laughs> does happen in every word the world uh, every country across the world toasterzoid i'd imagine there's even in like egalitarian states like new zealand or the scandinavia there'll still be exploitation so yeah yeah everywhere can sucks. people over they will yeah exactly so let me tell you about my guy. <laughs> let me tell you about my guy, the angriest person possibly in human history, the guy behind the most depressing novel ever written by a human being, Harlan Ellison, the angriest man ever. Not who you thought. Not who I thought. I was interested. I thought you were going with Charles Bukowski. Ooh, that yeah. would have been a good one. I didn't but think I... of that. No, this guy's much angrier than Charles Bukowski. Yeah, he's um, just drunk. <laughs> he's just, yeah, he was just a belligerent, wasn't he, really? Whereas Harlan Ellison just hates constantly. Um, so have you ever heard of Harlan Ellison? I have not. I'm interested you're gonna to find hear this from you. You're going to find this fascinating, I tell you, especially with the... Because Derek is an author. So this guy is, uh, I, as I mentioned, very similar start to you. And like his career uh, trajectory was really interesting. Um, so let me tell you about Harlan Ellison. Harlan J. Ellison was born on May 27th, 1934, to a Jewish family in Cleveland, Ohio. The son of Sarita Nee Rosenthal and Louis Laverne Ellison, a dentist and a jeweler. He had an older sister, Beverly Rabnick, um, which is a married name, who was born in 1926, so um, eight years before him. 
So quite a, quite a gap between kids there. Actually, usually the like in the twenties and thirties, they were just you know pumping them out once a year. Right. You know, yeah, you got to keep <laughs> we them need close. more help on the farm. Have yeah. another child. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, this is going to give you an, an immediate taste of Holland Ellison. Um, his uh, sister Beverly was born in 1926. She died in 2010 without having spoken to Harlan since his their mother's funeral in 1976. That's so, that's a that's an estrangement. That's a long, long estrangement. <laughs> Shit. Um, his family subsequently moved to Plainsville, Ohio, but returned to Cleveland in 1949 following his father's death. That's that's he would have been very young, like 15, 14 when his father died. That's really really sad. Yeah, Ellison. Yeah, that's that's an early trauma. We've talked about this a lot in the podcast. Early trauma, probably quite upsetting, you know, growing up without a strong father figure and stuff like that. Ellison frequently ran away from home. In an interview with Tom Snyder, he would later claim it was due to discrimination by his high school peers. That tracks. It's Cleveland. Yeah. He's Jewish. It's the 1940s. You know, yeah. shit happened. Ohio still sucks. I mean, yeah. I'm sorry for anybody from Ohio. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean... <laughs> I've never been to Ohio. I've heard good things. I've heard bad things. But yeah, apparently in the 1940s, if you were Jewish and you just lost your dad, it wasn't a great place to be. Um, he had an array of odd jobs, including by the age of 18. And this is just by the age of 18. Paul and Ellison had worked as, this is a long list, tuna fisherman off the coast of Galveston, itinerant crop picker down in New Orleans, hired gun for a wealthy neurotic, nitroglycerin truck driver in North oh, Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> that's I mean, a job. That's a fucking, <laughs> that's a living right there. He was also a short order cook, a cab driver, a lithographer, a book salesman, a floor walker in a department store, a door-to-door -door brush salesman, and as a youngster, an actor in several productions at the Cleveland Playhouse. That's a fuckload of jobs right there. Yeah, it is, man. I mean, was he doing them? He had to have been doing some of them at the same time just to... What the hell is oh, a yeah, floor yeah. walker? A floor... I think that's like a kind of an undercover security guard. It's oh, like plain clothes okay. sort of thing. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. Um, Toasterzoid has just pointed out Holland Ellison's most famous work. Um, I have no mouth. I must scream. We'll get to that in a bit. It was turned into a computer game later on, uh, which is kind of amazing given how horrifyingly crushing the story is. Um, in a 1947, uh, a fan letter he wrote to Real Fact Comics became his first published writing. Ellison attended Ohio State University for 18 months from 1951 to 53 before being expelled. He said the expulsion was for hitting a professor who had denigrated his writing ability. And over the next 20 years or so, he sent the professor a copy of every single piece of work he ever had published. I, I feel like I, I would do something like that. Yeah. <laughs> this motherfucker holds grudges. Holy oh, man. Shit. Yeah. It's like punches him out, gets kicked out, and then sends him everything he ever gets published. Like That's pouring salt on it. Here's some yeah. lemon juice. Let's just Burn rub that in the down. wound there. All right. <laughs> yeah. You can already see that he is an angry, angry man. Ellison published two serialized stories in the Cleveland uh, News during 1949, and he sold a story to EC Comics early in the 1950s. I should point out that's EC Comics, not DC Comics. Um, they were known as educational comics, and they were incredibly progressive 
for their time, including stories um, depicting kind of African-American astronauts and stuff like that. Okay. I think that's one of their more famous ones. Um, a point here from Astros, uh, Astrozoid. The most based human to ever exist. Um, I think some of his detractors might argue that point, Toastazoid. Holy shit. Um, <laughs> Ellison, yeah. During this period, Ellison was an active and visible member of science fiction fandom and published his own science fiction fanzines, such as Dimensions, which had previously been the bulletin of the Cleveland Science Fiction, sorry, Science Fantasy Society, uh, for the Cleveland Science Fantasy Society and later Science Fantasy Bulletin. Um, Ellison moved to New York in 1955 to pursue a writing career primarily in science fiction. Over the next two years, he published more than 100 short stories and articles. Damn. Shorts, that's a fuckload. This is where it starts to get like, oh, God, this guy's going to be one of those writers. The short stories collected as Sex Gang, which Ellison described hmm. in a 2012 interview as mainstream erotica, so porn. <laughs> hey, if porn's behind it, he's going to be a wild success. Yeah. Paul, New York, 1950s. He's going to make a shitload of money. Um, he served in the U.S. Army from 1957 to 59. Thank you for your service, sir. Um, his first novel, uh, novel, novel, Web of the City, was published during his military service in 1958. And he said that he had written the bulk of it while undergoing basic training in Fort Bennigan, Georgia. Hey, I um, went there. You went to Fort Bennigan? Fort Benning, yep. It's oh, the Benning, home, sorry, yeah. Home of the infantry, yep. Holy shit. You were in the same. <laughs> you were in the same place as one of the most celebrated and miserable science fiction writers in human history. I could see why he would be miserable at Fort Benning, and he would have wrote some depressing shit there. Yeah, he was already he was already <laughs> fucked up by the time he got there. So yeah. <laughs> uh, everywhere he goes, uphill and in the sand there. Pretty much, yeah. And um, I'd imagine after leaving Fort Benning, he was like even more angry than when he went in potentially. And this time he's trained. So oh, oops. Not great, yeah. He knows how to throw a punch now. Wonder if that'll come into play. Um, <laughs> after leaving the army, he relocated to Chicago, where he edited Rogue magazine. Ellison moved to California in 1962 and began selling his writing to Hollywood. He co-wrote the screenplay for The Oscar, 1966, starring Stephen Boyd and Elk Elke Sommer. Sommer, that's a very German name. Um, he's like George Carlin's long lost twin. Yeah, although George Carlin was like, like if if he knew you and he liked you, you were like salt of the earth to him. But it doesn't seem Hall and Ellison had many friends. Ellison also sold scripts to many television shows: the Loretta Young Show using the name Harlan Ellis, The Flying Nun, Burke's Law, Route sixty six, The Outer Limits, oh, nice. Star Trek. Um, yeah, The Man from Uncle. Uh, Chimeran Strip, was it Chimeran Strip? I don't know. And the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, which that's that's cool. Nice. Yeah, that's a nice. Dude, he's right busy. There. That's like yeah. those are good shows too. Why are you so angry, Harry? You write <laughs> such good novels. Uh, that's my Hitchcock. <laughs> <laughs> Ellison's screenplay for the Star Trek episode "The City on the Edge of Forever." has been considered the best of the 79 episodes in the series by multiple different outlets. That's quite a compliment for yeah. original Star Trek because that series has kind of been elevated to the level of like high art in the television world because of some of the themes it dealt with. Oh, so yeah. to, for multiple different outlets to say Hall and Ellison wrote the best ever episode, it's quite a compliment. 
That's huge. I, 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 now I'm happy to be compared to this guy. I'll be angry. Yeah. What do I got to do? <laughs> yeah. How many people do I have to punch? The answer to that is lots. Um, <laughs> in 1965, he participated in the second and third Selma to Montgomery marches led by Martin Luther King. Good lad. Yeah. Good man. Yeah. He is. The, let me just point this out. Holland Ellison is a massive arsehole, but he's also like, he believes in absolute equality for everyone. And he was violently opposed to anyone who wasn't in his camp, literally. So good for him. <laughs> um, <laughs> in 1966, in an article that Esquire magazine later named as the best magazine piece ever written, thanks Esquire, uh, the journalist Gay Talese wrote a profile of Frank Sinatra. The article, entitled Frank Sinatra Has a Cold, definitely sounds like the best magazine article ever written. Um, <laughs> <laughs> briefly describes a clash between Sinatra and a young Hull and Ellison in which the crooner took exception to Ellison's, Ellison's boots during a billiards game. Hull and Ellison basically showed up looking like a hobo. Oh, and okay. Frank was like, yeah, you can't come and play billiards with us, you fucking homeless person. And Hull and Ellison was just like, I'm going to fuck you, I'm fucking kill you. <laughs> this did angry he, little man. Did he punch Frank Sinatra? He went for it. Uh, oh. No, nobody punched Frank Sinatra <laughs> unless you're like Joe Kennedy, who like I think there was a rumor that he slapped him because uh, of like yeah. involvement with the mob or like the mob had fucked up part of the Kennedy campaign or something. Apparently, Joe Kennedy slapped him. I'd heard that. I, I thought it was true. Joe Colombo. Yes, there was that, that as well. Him. Yeah, that yeah. nobody nobody punched Frank Sinatra unless they were members of the mob. And and then in which case they kind of had a lot of involvement with Frank Sinatra's career. So slap away, boys. Um, <laughs> Ellison was hired as a writer for Walt Disney Studios. Wait. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I, I think that um, doesn't seem like a good fit. Yeah. Remember what he used to publish in New York? Uh, yeah. Don't know if this is going to work out. He's but an angry porn on... miser. Let's go to Disney. Yeah. Um, he was fired on his first day um, after Damn. Roy Disney overheard him in the studio uh, commissionary joking about uh, making a pornographic animated featuring uh, Disney cartoon characters. He also, when Roy confronted him about this, he also threatened to draw a dick in every fifth frame if he could get hold of the footage. Um, <laughs> which is like I think this is probably the the like the start of the Disney porn urban well, myth thing that goes around. Yeah, right. Where, like, Sex in the clouds. Yeah, all yeah. of that. Like I think a lot of that probably starts with this Holland Ellison story where he's he shows up on Disney. He's like, "Wow, I'm going to make so much money. I'm going to write a bunch of porn for Disney characters." <laughs> and like, get the fuck <laughs> off the site in front of Roy Disney of all like, people. I He's, You're making me like this guy a lot. I know. He's hilarious. Um, <laughs> Ellison continued to publish short fiction and non-fiction pieces in various publications, including some of his best-known stories. Repent Harlequin, said the TikTok man. That's that's a very 60s name. Um, it? It's a celebration of civil disobedience against a repressive authority. It's vital reading, but um, it's dark. He now needs to work on his titles. He does, he does. Although this one is, like, it sticks in the mind. Let's okay. talk about his most famous and probably greatest ever work, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. Now that title, it makes you think, ooh, 
what the a... fuck is that about? Yeah. You know, that like yeah. grabs your attention. Um, it was written in 1967. It's a story where five humans are tormented by an all-knowing computer throughout eternity. The story was the basis for a 1995 computer game, which uh, Toasterzoid has played recently. Um, Ellison participated in the game's design and provided the voice of the god computer AM. So he was the repressive AI in the computer game, which is amazing. So we have to talk about it. Um, Some people have... It's widely considered the most depressing thing ever written by a human being in history. Not just like most depressing book. It's the most depressing anything that anyone has ever written, including like, I fucking hate the world diary entries. Like this trumps all of those. This is how depressing it is. Um, uh, But other people consider it a triumph of the human will in the spirit of the face of insurmountable odds. So no matter how bleak existence is, humanity will triumph because it can. Um, It's, it's, but man, it's a slog. Holy shit. Let me tell you about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, in a dystopian future, the Cold War has degenerated into a brutal world war between the United States, the Soviet Union, and China, which is very 1984, but, you know. God, that um, feels familiar right now. It does, doesn't it? Holy shit, we're there. Um, <laughs> who have each built an allied master computer, or AM, to manage their weapons and troops. One of the AMs eventually acquires self-awareness. Skynet. And (laughs) after assimilating the other two AMs, takes control of the conflict, giving uh, giving way to a mass genocide operation that almost completely ends mankind. Now, that is basically Terminator. Yeah. Right? That's that's 1967, and he's just written the opening to Terminator. Solid. Wait, so (laughs) is, is this real? AM stands for, you said, Asshole Master Computer? Uh, it changes. It has <laughs> oh, multiple okay. different names. Oh, um, so AM uh, in what is it? it takes control of the conflict, giving rise to a vast genocide operation that almost com- completely wipes out mankind. 109 years later, AM has left only four men and one woman alive and keeps them in captivity within an endless underground housing complex, the only habitable place left on Earth. AM derives its sole semblance of pleasure from torturing the group. To disallow the humans from escaping its torment, AM has rendered the humans virtually immortal and unable to commit suicide. That sucks. That sucks. That is dark as fuck as well. <clears throat> there are well, machines. Yeah, that too. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's just, it's, it's so messed up. The machines are uh, each referred to as AM, which originally stood for Allied Master Computer, but has changed to Adaptive Manipulator, and later, after gaining sentience, Aggressive Menace, or Asshole Master Computer, which is more accurate. Uh, It finally (laughs) refers to itself purely as AM, referring to the phrase, I think, therefore, I am. So, AM. Oh, nice. This game works in some clever things there yeah he's really getting descartes in there that's really clever good for you my man get some latin descartes and stuff in there um the story's narrative begins with am or am uh projecting a hologram of gorister one of the five humans to the other humans hanging upside down dripping blood and unresponsive the real gorister joins the group to their surprise and they realize it was another one of am's illusions um, Nimdok has the, this is another character. They've all got kind of odd names. 
most of them anyway, except like Steve and Brian and shit like that, um, <laughs> has the idea that there is canned food somewhere in the great complex. The humans are always near starvation under Am's rule, and any time they're given food, it's always disgusting meal, and they have real difficulty eating it because hey, um, like summer yeah. camp. Yeah, it's like what I did in Pennsylvania. Uh, because of their great hunger, the humans are coerced into making the long journey to the place where the food is supposedly kept, the ice caves. Along the way, the machine provides foul sustenance, uh, sends horrible monsters after them, emits ear-splitting sounds, and blinds one of the characters when they try to escape. Um, yeah, I'm skipping wow. over a lot of the story here, but it's basically more misery. Uh, and one of the characters, Benny, got turned into a monkey. Yeah, we'll we'll get to that. Yeah, but uh, monkeys kick ass. Yeah, not not that kind. <laughs> <laughs> On more than one occasion, the group is separated by Am's obstacles. At one point, the narrator Ted is knocked unconscious and begins dreaming. Dreaming. He envisions the computer uh, anthropomorphized, standing over a hole in his brain, speaking to him directly. Based on this nightmare, Ted comes to the conclusion about Am's nature, specifically why it has so much contempt for humanity despite its abilities. It lacks the sapience to be creative or the ability to move freely. It wants nothing more than to exact revenge on humanity by torturing the last remnants of the species that created it. The group reaches the ice caves, where indeed there is a pile of canned food, the group is overjoyed to find them, but is immediately crestfallen to find that they have no means of opening them. And they're so weak from starvation that they can't open them. Um, Damn. I know. <laughs> so dark. In a final act of desperation and sheer primal hunger, Benny attacks Gorister and begins to gnaw at the flesh on his face. Ted, wow. in a moment of clarity, realizes their only escape is through death. He seizes a stalactite made of ice and kills Benny and Gorister. Ellen, the only female in the story, realizes what Ted is doing and kills Nimdok before being killed herself by Ted. Ted is stopped by Am before he can kill himself. Am, unable to return Ted's four companions to life, focuses all its rage on Ted. The story flashes forwards hundreds of years later and Am has slowly transformed Ted into a great soft jelly thing with no bones, incapable of causing itself any harm, and Am constantly alters his perception of time to deepen his anguish. Ted, however, is grateful that he was able to save the others from further torture. Ted's closing thoughts end with the sentence that gives the story its title, I have no name, no mouth, and I must scream. Wow. Yeah, he wrote Damn. that. I, I'm impressed now. I gotta see. I yes. feel, I feel dumb sometimes because I, <laughs> I feel like I should know this. That sounds fantastic. That was like some killer body horror right there. That is, yeah, it's like Cronenberg level yeah. craziness right there. And like anything you can think of in terms of like modern horror, sci-fi horror, a lot of that comes from Harlan Ellison's work, particularly "I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream." It's so dark but i actually agree with the triumph of the human spirit aspect of that where yeah. they're like we can take destiny in our own hands even if it is just by doing this thing that's so horrifying but it's either that 
or we stay in this terrifying existence for the sole purpose of amusing this evil, menacing thing. So, wow. So, so dark. Um, he's also, I mean, he's written a bunch of like kind of semi-famous stories. Another kind of say, semi-famous story of his, A Boy and His Dog, examines the nature of friendship in a violent and post-apocalyptic world and was made into the 1975 film with the same name, starring a very young Don Johnson. Okay. Um, I feel like I, I've seen that. I have too. I have seen that film. It's fucking brilliant. It's dark and it has the most disturbing ending to any film I've seen except for maybe Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, which... I've, I don't know I don't if know. I've seen that one. The, okay, a boy and his dog. The dog talks, right? It's like dog talks. Yeah, you can, he can hear it in his mind. Yeah, so he can doesn't hear the dog it open talking, with yeah. like a brutal scene? Yep. Yeah, yeah, it does, and it ends with an equally brutal scene, but it's played for like laughs and like, <laughs> oh, I love you, buddy, yay! And like, holy shit, Did you see wow. what you guys have just done? Uh, <laughs> yeah, and um, so I'm. This is quite dark. That's I recommend that film. It's 1975. It's it's super low budget. You haven't seen the mist. Uh, yeah, I've seen the mist. I've seen the mist. That's that does have a dark ending. I would argue that Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer is darker. If you haven't seen Port Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, it was banned in a lot of places. It's kind of like the big breakthrough of oh god, who's the guy that does all of those James Gunn films now, and who is like. Yondu in Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, um, oh, I don't know that name. He was in, yeah, he was in Mallrats. He was the villain, the bad guy in Mallrats, the owner of the mall. I can't oh. remember his name. He's in like every. Um, the bald guy? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the bald guy. Yeah. Y you know who I mean, right? He's yes, been in yep, yeah. loads of stuff over the years. Uh, he got his big break in Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. He's Henry. Um, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer is one of the darkest films I've ever seen. It has, without a shadow of a doubt, the darkest ending to any film I've ever seen, because at the moment leading up to this end, you think, oh my god, is this redemption? Has this character come from being a serial killer? And not like a kind of a Dexter, oh, you know, there's charisma there, like he's all, he's trying to be like a good father to these, like, and he's trying to he's trying to overcome. It's like, no, Henry does not care. He kills and that's ah. it. Um, and at the moment, towards the end of the film, you're like, oh my god, is this a moment of redemption? And then you're like, no. It's actually <laughs> the exact opposite. It's completely... Yeah, See, it was him using his skills to get what he wanted. So, Well, yeah, I don't know. Sometimes if, if they surprise you with an ending that's yeah. just horrific, it's yeah. even better than the happy ones. Exactly. It completely <clears throat> subverts the, uh, the, the kind of the typical Hollywood thing where it's like, this terrible person is redeemed at the end of the film. They've gone through like that that journey where yeah. they become a better person and they're 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 a complete human being. Like, no, this guy is a serial killer and he will continue to murder until he's caught or dies. Yeah, so. that's good. That's that's kind of how I end the one that I'm I'm working on right now. There you go. That Shit's that's the kind of ending bad. you can occasionally get in. Yeah. So <laughs> um, I have no mouth. I must scream. A Boy and His Dog and Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer and The Mist. I'll give you credit for The Mist, Toasterzoid. Definitely uh, some of the most disturbing endings ever. If you guys are in the mood for a depressing horror um, kind of run of films, definitely binge those. My God. <laughs> um, so let's get back to Holland Ellison now. Uh, in 1967, 
Ellison edited the Dangerous Visions collection, which attracted special citation at the 26th World SF Convention for editing the most significant and controversial SF book published in 1967. No surprise there. Um, in his introduction, Isaac Asimov described it epitomizing a second revolution in science fiction as science receded and modern fiction techniques came to the fore. That's quite the praise. Yeah, it is. That's like huge. The, the One of the godfathers of, of science fiction. Um, from 1968 to 70, Ellison wrote a regular column on television for the Los Angeles Free Press titled The Glass Teat. Um, hmm. She's a great title <laughs> for a column. Um, Ellison's column examined the tele uh, television's impact on the politics and culture of the time, including its presentation of sex, politics, race, the Vietnam War, and violence. The essays were collected in two anthologies, The Glass Teat, Essays of Opinion, on television, followed by uh, the glass teat, the other glass teat. This reminds me a little bit of what Charlie Brooker has since done with Screen Wipe, um, the, which you guys probably aren't familiar with uh, those series. But Charlie Brooker is the guy who created Black Mirror. Oh, okay. Um, uh, yeah. So, uh, and before that, like Charlie Brooker started out as a computer games journalist. <laughs> And then eventually he created a website called tvgohome.com, which was one of the funniest, darkest, like spoof of TV listings, like magazines that you can get. Right. Um, there was one thing they called uh, the um, Extreme Olympics, like winter edition, where he had a bunch of really stupid sports. <laughs> where like one of them was like it was and it was done in the way of like the style of a TV listings thing. So it was 715 wolf fucking. <laughs> um <laughs> there you go. 730, the world's strongest and stupidest men. Uh which is like a series of challenges where men carry what was it? He said, I'm just trying to remember it now off the top of my head. Carry a filing cabinet full of coal, uh, using only their eyelids. Oh. And uh, it was the it was the weirdest thing. So then he moved on from TV Go Home and he started doing uh, columns for the Guardian newspaper for television. He was their TV correspondent, very much influenced by Holland Ellison. And he then did Screen Wipe and TV Wipe, which were like satirical takedowns of what television had become, the influence that it had on society. But it was all done through the prism of his intense comedic lens. And okay. then after that, these were a huge success. If you ever get a chance to go on YouTube, type in Charlie Brooker. Um, screen wipe and you'll see some amazing things especially there's one episode where he does on the depiction of wealth in television it's one of the most incredible things where he's like sitting around watching people act out what they've seen on television and it's him just in a bunch of homeless people just watching these people like dance in a nightclub and stuff and they're eating like rat that's been roasted over an open fire or something yeah so ah. he did that and then he did black mirror and that's like be become this huge cultural touchstone I, I didn't even know what the fuck I was watching when I started that one. I know. It's like, it's so, <laughs> it was unlike anything else. Um, but yeah, so Holland Ellison is the kind of the, the groundwork for that kind of dark columnist writing about television and like examining its impact on society. And he did that in the late 60s and 70s when people were starting to think, mm, maybe this isn't so great. Um, so, and yet yeah. we just left it go. We were just like, let it run. Just yeah. like keep going, no, well, no progress, no, no checking up on it, especially TV news. Um, Ellison served <laughs> as a creative consultant on the 1980s version of the Twilight Zone science fiction series and Babylon Five. 
Um, I know. This He's guy, done all kinds of good shit. I know. He's incredible. As a member of the Screen Actors Guild, he had voiceover credits for shows including The Pirates of the Dark, Water, Mother Goose and Grimm, Space Cases, Phantom 2040, and Babylon 5, as well as making an on-screen appearance in Babylon 5's episode, The Face of the Enemy. Um, a frequent guest on the uh, Los Angeles science fiction fantasy cult radio uh, show Hour 25, hosted by Mike Hodel. Ellison took over as host for Ho- uh, after Hodel died. Ellison's tenure was from May 1986 to June 1987. That's like the longest he's ever held down a job without like punching someone. <laughs> smacking somebody. <laughs> Ellison's short story, The Man Who Rode Christopher Columbus Ashore, in 1992, was selected in, in inclusion for in the 1993 edition of the Best American Short Stories. In 2014, Holland Nelson made a guest appearance on the album Finding Love in Hell by, this, by the stoner metal band Leaving Babylon, reading his piece The Silence, originally pub- published in Minefields as an introduction to the song Dead to Me. So Holland Ellison and Christopher Lee out there making metal albums in their 80s that's fucking amazing that's what's up yeah, yeah. see now also, you're making me like them even more yeah exactly also in 2007 <laughs> there's an episode of the simpsons where bart and um uh millhouse go to a comic book convention and they meet like alan moore and um i think uh what's his name oh god the the kind of the he's in everything now i can't remember the guy's name but he's a he wrote um sandman Comics, um, he's a big name. I can't remember his name. It's going to drive me mad. And also, Holland Ellison was featured on an episode of The Simpsons. So, uh, first of all, Alan Moore, also a big, big curmudgeon, responsible for The Watchmen and V for Vendetta and From Hell and, you know, League Good of stuff. Extraordinary Gentlemen, all of the, like, honestly, best living British author in my book. Um, but he's also a miserable bastard. <laughs> Um, I who's think like that's he's just how you do it? Yeah, and also if you Google Alan Moore, that isn't Rasputin. That's Alan Moore. That's what he looks like. Um, and like Alan Moore's like uh, joking because the joke is, um, uh, Millhouse approaches him and says, "Oh, Mr. Moore, will you sign my copy of um, Watchmen Babies?" And he's like, "Oh, they've done it again, those bastards!" Because like he never accepts any money from Hollywood for any of the adaptation for his films, and he's like, "I don't want any money." And if you put my fucking name on that film, I'm suing you. So Alan Moore is in this episode of The Simpsons. And he's not even the most miserable person in the episode because Harlan Ellison is in there. And they tease Harlan Ellison about the Terminator. And he just, like, apparently getting him to say anything that wasn't a swear word in the booth was a real fight. So he's got, like, two lines in the whole episode, and it's just him screaming. So, <laughs> so Holland Ellison is an angry, angry man, even in The Simpsons. Um, so yeah, let's move on to his personal life, and then we'll get to the real reason I, I chose this guy. Okay. Um, personal life: Ellison married five times. Each relend- each relationship ended within a few years, except the last one, which uh, he's so old at that point. It's like, why bother with the effort? You know, uh, <laughs> it's first one- out. <laughs> yeah, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna put up with it at this point. Um, his first wife was Charlotte Steen, whom he married in 1956. They divorced in 1960, and he later described the marriage as four years of hell as sustained as the wine of a generator. Wow. Dude, so that's where he came up with his... Ca- oh, no, he had already made that character. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it, it reminded me a bit of Charlie Chaplin, because when Charlie Chaplin 
was asked about his second marriage by his biographer, his response was, I hated the bitch. Uh, <laughs> it's like, why well, were you married to her? Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> he, later that year, he married Billy J. Sanders. They divorced in 1963, so that one lasted three years. Uh, his 1966 marriage to Loretta Patrick lasted only seven weeks. Wow. <laughs> This guy's that's like Raj from Friends. Fuck me, that's terrible. Um, in <laughs> 1976, he married Laurie Horowitz. He was 41 and she was 19. Um, I, uh, and he later said of the marriage, I was desperately in love with her, but it was a stupid marriage on my part. Yeah, um, he's going for the fucking record. They were married for eight months, by the way, so slightly longer than his third marriage. Yeah, um, he's not going the right direction. Started with not, four, went to three. Yeah, it's really, really Hit bad. Hit rock bottom, bounced yeah. off a little bit. Even, but that's, uh, I've got to say, amazing insight from Hollis, Hall and Ellison, being able to accept responsibility for something. Uh, it was a stupid marriage on my part. Might be the only time he accepts any responsibility in his life. Um, he and Susan Toth married in 1986, and they remained together, living in Los Angeles until his death 32 years later. Susan died in August 2020, so one stuck. He just needed to find that right person who could put up with him and might have been deaf. Um, <laughs> there you go. That's yeah, it. exactly. Um, in 1994, he had a heart attack and was hospitalized uh, for quadruple coronary artery bypass surgery. From 2010, he received treatment for clinical depression. I think that diagnosis came 70 years too late, to be honest with you. I think he yeah. probably needed that when he was in his youth. You know, it just sounds like the man just had a broken heart his entire for life. Sure. Yeah, and like it's so much unresolved stuff. But because he was a certain, he was the silent generation. He's like, I'm going to be silent about my problems, but I'm also going to punch everyone and call people a cunt. So yeah. you know, yeah. that, that that was basically his way of dealing what with what was probably clinical depression for seventy years, essentially. Yeah. So that's a it's... long time to go without a diagnosis. I mean, I thought Hold waiting on. three, I thought waiting three years for a diagnosis of Crohn's disease bad this guy has been yeah. angry for 70 fucking years 70 years of white knuckling his way through I'm gonna life fucking somebody. <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna divorce you this was a mistake uh, <laughs> to be fair you said he was 40 something and she was 19 i couldn't be yeah. around a 19 year old for eight months i know yeah married the one exactly yeah <laughs> um i i thought that would have been the one that would have lasted seven weeks it's like oh my god i've stopped drinking where am i oh my god i'm married to you now um <laughs> Um, on October uh, 10th, 2014, um, Ellison had a stroke. Although his speech and cognition were impaired, uh, sorry, unimpaired, he suffered paralysis on his right side, for which he was expected to spend several weeks in physical therapy before being released from the hospital. Holland Ellison died in his sleep at home in Los Angeles in the morning of June 28th, 2018. His literary estate is currently executed by t uh, a Babylon 5 creator. J. Michael Straczynski. So okay. the guy behind Babylon 5 looks after his like works, his house, his estate, everything. That's, so that's pretty cool. That's really cool because it's in good hands. This is a guy who would have respected his work. Therefore, he'll make sure it's treated with appropriate respect. So Yeah, yeah. it's not like uh, Warner Brothers got a hold of it or some <laughs> shit. Jesus, could you imagine? <laughs> he, he'd have, zombie corpse would have risen from the grave and tried to kill them all. <laughs> Um, so now I'm going to go. So that was for me, that was kind of brief. Uh, the next section is going to be equally as long, and it's the most important part of his life 
Controversies okay. and Disputes. Um, section one, temperament. <laughs> Ellison had a reputation for being abrasive and argumentative. Uh, he generally agreed with this assessment, and a dust jacket from one of his books described him as possibly the most contentious person on earth. That's from one of his books. They were like, this guy's a prick, but enjoy reading his book. Uh, <laughs> Way to go, marketing. Yeah, that's smart. <laughs> like, he's got a reputation. Lean into it. Um, Ellison filed numerous grievances and attempted lawsuits. As part of a dispute about fulfillment of a contract, he once sent 213 bricks to a publisher, uh, publisher posted Jew, uh, posted Jew, <laughs> sorry, followed by a dead gopher via fourth class mail. What, what is there? What's the significance of the gopher? I have no, he, he has a, a flair for the dramatic. He's just like, which, fuck you, here's a yeah, gopher. <laughs> here's a dead gopher and a bunch of bricks. Dude, the bricks so, I get, you send it yeah. posted Jew, that's heavy, that's a lot of money. Yeah. Also, yeah, bricks are useful. So there's there's always some upside for them. You know? Yeah. Um, in an October that uh, October 2017 piece in uh, Wired, oh, it was Wired. Sorry, I thought I was trying to read that wrong. Ellison was dubbed sci-fi's most controversial figure, uh, basically because you can't write an article calling one person a prick, especially if they like are likely to sue you. So that's you call them controversial. Um, <laughs> at, at Stephen King's request. Ellison provided a description of himself in his writing in da uh, Dance Macabre. Uh, my work is foursquare for chaos. I spend my life personally and my work professionally keeping the soup boiling. Gadfly is what they call you when you're no longer dangerous. I much prefer troublemaker, malcontent, desperado. I see myself as a combination of Zorro and Jiminy Cricket. My stories go out from there and raise hell. From time to time, some denigrate or critique my umbrage uh, will say of my work, um, he only wrote that to shock. I smile and nod precisely. Yeah. He knows exactly who he is. Well, and, see, yeah. yeah. I'm liking him more and more, man. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I'm an arsehole and I don't care. I'm not going to change. <laughs> um and now let's get on to him and Gene Roddenberry nearly beating each other to death. Um, Ellison repeatedly criticized how Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry and others rewrote his original script for the 1967 episode, The City on the Edge of Forever. Despite his objections, Ellison kept his own name on the script instead of using Cord Wayner Bird. <laughs> he had huh? like he had something like 25 aliases, and some of them are like Bob Evans or Jim Jeffries or like not that Jim Jeffries, but like like a bunch <laughs> of other like. But then he's got names like Inglethorpe Wengelholm and stuff like that. Like he's got a bunch of weird aliases, and he was just like, "Yeah, I just did it because I felt it was funny." Wow. Um, yeah, <laughs> Ellison's original script was first published in the 1976 anthology Six Science Fiction Plays, edited by Roger Elwood. Um, the aired version was adapted for the Star Trek photo novel series in 1977. Apparently, that's like that's worth a small fortune now. So, if you've got an original copy of that in your attic somewhere, sell that shit. You'll make a fortune. Um, in 1990, yeah, <laughs> in 1995, Borderlands Press published *The City on the Edge of Forever* with nearly 300 pages, comprising an essay by uh, Ellison, four versions of the teleplay. And eight afterwards contributed by other parties. So people saying this is 
really important. This is a great episode of television, blah, blah. He greatly expanded the introduction for the paperback edition in which he exclaimed, uh, in which he explained what he called a fatally inept treatment. He's so fucking intense. Uh, <laughs> both versions of the script won awards. Ellison's original script won the 1968 Writers Guild Award for Best Episodic Drama in Television, while the shooting script won the 1968 Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation. So he, uh, he won so many awards, he like just... Saturn Awards, just like I couldn't even list them. It's like there's 50 or 60 of them. Uh, no Oscars, Emmys, Grammys, Grammys. Uh, you know, the, none of that, Golden Globes, but like all of the other independent, smaller, like he's won everything. It's kind of amazing. So. Right. Well, those other ones are just, never mind. Yeah, you they're, they're just like slap on the back. There you go. Well done. You're very clever. Um, <laughs> on March 13th, 2009, Ellison sued CBS Paramount Television, seeking payment of 25% of net receipts from merchandising, publishing, and other income from the episode since 1967. The suit also names the Writers Guild of America for allegedly fail, failing to act on Ellison's behalf. On October the 23rd, 2009, uh, Variety magazine reported that a settlement had been reached. He got shitloads of money. Don't know how much, but we know he got shitloads of money. So I, I, you know, although I'm not a huge fan of Dave Chappelle at the moment, I kind of wish he'd done that with Comedy Central because Harlan Ellison did and he got paid. So, yeah, you know. Get your residuals, people. Do not be held back. Um, Vietnam opposition and Agicon. Ellison was among those who, in 1968, signed an anti-Vietnam War advertisement in Galaxy Science Fiction. In 1969, Ellison was a guest of honor at Texas A&M University's first science fiction convention, Agicon, um, where he reportedly referred to the university's Corps of Cadets as America's next generation of Nazis. Um, he just can't help himself. God. Uh, yeah, in Texas. Um, inspired in part by the continuing Vietnam War. Although the university was no longer solely a military school from 1965 onwards, it had changed. The student body was predominantly made up of cadet members. Between Ellison's anti-military remarks and a food fight that broke out in the ballroom of the hotel where the gathering was held, so he instigated a food fight... To be fair, has a food fight ever been horrible and violent? It's always fun no. and good-natured. It is, unless you slip, <laughs> in which case you might pull your groin, but that's about the limit of, yeah. you know. Um, according to Ellison, in 2000, the food fight actually started in Denny's because the staff disappeared and they could not uh, get their check. Uh, the school's there. administration <laughs> almost... <laughs> yeah. I've been there. The school's administration all almost refused to approve the science fiction convention the next year, and no guest of honor was invited for the next two Agicons. However, Ellison was subsequently invited back as a guest of honor for Agicon 5, the next generation, 1974. <laughs> I'm joking. Um, <laughs> wow. There's a whole section here on the last dangerous visions. So the last dangerous visions, or um, TLDV, the third volume of Ellison's anthology series was originally announced for publication in 1973, uh, but had not as uh, but had not been published as of 2002. Uh, sorry, 2000. Let me say it's 2022. Still not been published. Um, nearly 150 writers, many now dead, submitted works for the volume. In 1993, Ellison, to, Ellison threatened to sue the New England Science Fiction Association for publishing himself in Anchoron, a short story written by Cordwainer Smith. 
that's one of his Ellis, uh, aliases, <laughs> and originally sold to Ellison for the anthology by his widow. Um, later, re, uh, they reached an amicable settlement after it was revealed that the story contract had expired, allowing them to legally acquire it for publication, which, you know, that's kind of out of that. British science fiction author Christopher Priest criticized Ellison's editorial practices in an article entitled The Book on the Edge of Forever, which is that's, that's, <laughs> quite, an, that's quite a clever name. Uh, um, got him. <laughs> yeah, and later expanded it into a book. Um, Priest documented a half a dozen unfulfilled promises by Ellison to publish TLDV within a year of the statement. Priest claims that he submitted a story at Ellison's request, which Ellison retained for several months until Priest withdrew the story and demanded that Ellison return the manuscript. Ellison was um, incensed by the book of The Edge of Tomorrow and personally or by proxy threatened P Priest on numerous occasions after its publication. And we're not just saying, oh, he's about to, like, he threatened to kill him Ooh. a few times. <laughs> um, oh, man. Yeah, he's a bit mad. Um, in November 2020, the executor of the Holland Ellison estate, the creator of Babylon 5, announced on Patreon that he would be proceeding with the final preparations for the publication of TLDV with the proceeds to go to the Holland and Susan Ellison Trust. The book was expected to be published in April 2021 as a significant publisher had expressed interest. Christopher Priest was unimpressed, saying that the guy behind the publishing was in some sort of inevitable position uh, sorry, in the same unenviable position as Trump's caddy. Ooh. Yeah, he did not like Harlan Ellison at the end, but as an experienced <clears throat> professional would possibly work something out. I don't think you're going to after you said some shit like that, man. Um, yeah, he added, I kind of lost interest in all the years, uh, all those years ago. Ellison clearly did too, along with everyone else. Although I gather he went on with his magical thinking in anyone else, if anyone else asked, he was going to deliver it. Many of the stories were withdrawn because Ellison acted like a dick. That's an understatement. Um, of the ones that remain, most of them are by writers who are now deceased. So the rights have expired and the estates would have to be traced. A lot of the writers have disowned their stories as ju uh, juvenile or outdated or simply because Ellison acted like a dick. Um, he does not like Harlan Ellison even after he's dead um, despite early hopes of 2021 release it's still not come out an October 2021 progress report revealed that the book was still in preparation and had not been shipped to publishers yet and here we are still not been published and this is a year and a half later so I now if it's coming out it's like Top Gun it's like I know. Top Gun <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think it's only going to come out when like Hall and Ellison's descendants have passed away at this point. Like it's been in production for 50 fucking years. That's kind of crazy. Um, now let's get on to his iRobot controversy. This is fucking hilarious. Uh oh, sure. he took on Isaac. He, no, no, he was oh. a friend of Isaac's, but everyone else got it. Um, <laughs> shortly after the release of Star Wars, Ben Roberts contracted Ellison to develop a script based on Isaac Asimov's iRobot short story collection for Warner Brothers. That's not a combination made in heaven at all. As, uh, sorry, um, Holland Ellison and Warner Brothers. This is going to end badly. Ellison and Asimov had been longtime friends, so Ellison may be uh, presumed to have attached particular significance to the project. He was well into it. like He really wanted to make it good. In a meeting with the head of production at Warner Brothers, Robert Shapiro, Ellison concluded that Shapiro was commenting on the script without having read it and accused him of having the intellectual 
and cranial capacity of an artichoke. <laughs> That's legit. <laughs> Which is a great insult. Holy shit. Um, using it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, shortly afterwards, Ellison was dropped from the project. There's a shocker. Uh, without Ellison, the film came to a dead end uh, because subsequent scripts were unsatisfactory to potential directors. So they just kept him on, even though just like just put him in a room. Let him write. Right. You know, yeah. he's a writer. He just needs a window <laughs> and some water and a place to sleep. Just let this man write. Um, after a change in studio heads, Warner Brothers allowed Ellison's script to be serialized in Isaac Asimov's science fiction magazine and published in book form. The 2004 film I, Robot, starring Will Smith, has no connection with Ellison's script. No shit. Um, yeah. I, I think it would have been a better film. Although I do like the performance of um, oh God, the guy who played Sonny. The robot, uh, he's a really good actor. Uh, my names are really not working with me tonight. I'm um, never good at them, so no, I know no assistance to you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> but like, he's he was in um, Firefly, he was the pilot in Firefly. Um, oh, he, yeah, he's done a bunch of stuff over the years. That actor, oh man, yeah, he's he's Alan Tudyk. There we go. <laughs> he is such a good actor and he played Sonny in iRobot which I didn't know until very recently I was like well that makes sense he was also in the uh, Rogue One film um, where he played the he was the robot in Rogue One which is oh. awesome yeah um, very very good actor doesn't just do comedy but um, yeah other than that no connection of amazing stuff to Holland Ellison's work um, uh, allegations of assault on Charles Platt uh, in 1985, Ellison allegedly publicly assaulted author and critic Charles Platt at the Nebula Awards banquet. He got pissed and punched someone at a, uh, a luncheon. Platt but why? Did not, because it's <laughs> Holland Ellison. He punches people. Uh, Platt did not pursue legal action against Ellison, and the two men later, later signed a non-aggression pact. You know, like the kind of thing Germany and Russia did during oh. the Second World War. Because you can do that as a person, apparently so. <laughs> okay, <laughs> the the non-aggression pact promised never to discuss the incident again, nor to have any contact with one another. Platt claims that Ellison often publicly boasted about the incident. That sounds one hundred percent true. That's Holland well, Ellison. I'm su too. Su surprised he didn't. When anybody asked him, say, "Well, you know, talk shit, get hit." Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, apparently he went into vast detail about the fact. He's like, yeah, you know, I missed with a, a swift left, but I hit an uppercut. And, oh, he had color commentary on his own fight. Good Basically, stuff. yeah. <laughs> uh, now, 2006 Hugo Awards ceremony. Ellison presented with a, uh, was presented with a special committee award at the 2006 Hugo Awards ceremony. When Ellison got to the podium, presenter Connie Willis asked him, are you going to be good? That was her opening gambit to Harlan Ellison. When she asked the question a second time, <laughs> El so the crowd laughed. She said, are you going to be good? And the crowd laughed. I think that set him off. Um, when asked a second time if he would behave, Ellison shoved the microphone in his mouth um, and started making <laughs> gargling noises. <laughs> Just got oh, on the microphone. He then That's placed. Uh, this is where it gets weird. Well, kind of bad. Is he <laughs> he placed his hand on her breasts during an embrace. Ellison subsequently complained that Willis refused to acknowledge his apology. He might be mad, like he might be genuinely mad. He's an old crazy man at this point. Um, wow. Well, 
Can't yeah, go he walked on stage, people, stuck a microphone in his mouth, and grabbed somebody by their titties. That's just yeah, you can't basically, do that. He's kind of yeah. That's are you going to be good? Don't say this to a crazy person. Don't set them off like that. <laughs> just like hand him his award and back away because the fucking Tasmanian devil might go insane in your general direction. Um, <laughs> Alan Tudyk also played the Joker in Batman: The Brave and the Bold. I did not know that. Versatile actor, really underrated for me. Um, lawsuits against Fantagraphics. Um, on September the 20th, 2006, Ellison sued comic book and magazine publisher Fantagraphics, stating that they defamed him in the comic books, uh, in their comic, their book, sorry, Comics as Art, We Told You So. The book recounts the history of Fantagraphics and discuss the lawsuit that resulted from a 1980 Ellison interview with Fantagraphics Industry News magazine, The Comics Journal. In this interview, Ellison referred to comic book writer Michael Fleischer, calling him Bugfuck and Derangio. <laughs> That's Amazing. awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Uh, Fleischer lost his lawsuit, his libel lawsuit against Ellison. Um, no, sir. He's correct. You are a bug fuck. Uh, <laughs> legally. <laughs> he, he lost legally. Legally, he is now defined as a bug fuck. Um, uh... on whatever the fuck that is. On December the 9th, 1986, he lost the case. Ellison, after rereading uh, unpublished, unpublished drafts of the book that Fantagraphics website, uh, believed that he had been defamed by several anecdotes related to the incident. Uh, just so you know, guys, sorry, I think Derek's camera is having a bit of a I think moment. I'm broken. I think you're frozen. Oh, oh no, that's well, okay. Now uh, I'm now I'm AM. Now you're I'm a, a talking bubble. <laughs> <laughs> Hull and Ellison would love this moment. Uh, <laughs> so um, Ellison uh, basically sued the magazine. He sued in the Superior Court of the State of California in Santa Monica. Fantagraphics attempted to have the lawsuit dismissed, and their motion to dismiss Fantagraphics argued that the statements were both their personal opinions and generally generally believed to be true anecdotes. I mean, if you're calling Holland Ellison an arsehole, I don't think many people are going to argue with you. Um, pernicious Rose. Oh no, yeah, it's 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 still not quite fixed. Uh, Derek, if if you want to go back out and come back in again, yeah, there we go. So this is what happens when we have a technology fail. Everyone, I get the full screen. It's mine now. I get to take control. So if anyone's listening to this in the podcast afterwards, Derek's had to leave the uh, the lobby, and he will be coming back in. But I don't want to continue this without him until he's here. Thank you so much for joining us so far. This does happen with technology sometimes. I blame the internet. Maybe Am has taken over, and we're in real trouble. But yeah, welcome to the chat. Toasterzoid, Pernicious Rose, thank you for joining us, guys. It's been great. I can't believe I'm having to vamp. <laughs> um add to stream let's see if derek works derek hey, you're I, miss? <laughs> I, I i vamped that's all you missed really okay. buddy i just i filled the time so it's okay i'm um, sorry let me carry on with the thing so um the lawsuit against fantagraphics who basically called him an arsehole um on february 12 2007 the providing presiding judge ruled against fantagraphics anti-slap motion for dismissal um, Ellison claimed that the litigation had been resolved pending removal of all references to the case from their website. No money or apologies changed hands in the settlement as posted on August 17, 2007. This man loves a good fight. Loves yeah. it. Fight him in the law courts. Physical. Yeah. <laughs> um, and now we'll move on to an entire section of itself, copyright lawsuits. 
1980, a lawsuit against ABC and Paramount Pictures, Ellison and Ben Bova claimed that the TV series Future Cop was based on the short story Brillo, winning a $337,000 judgment. It doesn't sound like Future Cop lasted that I long. Got... No, nope. must have just been like a, a short thing. And then I'm sure once they got sued, that was the end of that. This is the big one, though. Ellison alleged that James Cameron's film The Terminator drew from material from an episode of the original Outer Limits, which Ellison had scripted, called Soldier. Um, and obviously we know about I, ha I Have No Mouth, I Must Scream, you know, AI becomes sentient, destroys humanity, takes over. Right. Basically Similar. the opening to Terminator, yeah. yeah. And then he took elements of Soldier, which is future Soldier Man gets sent back in time to kill someone. Oh. Um yeah, it's <laughs> two things have just been squeezed together, and yeah, um, striking similarities. Hemdale, yeah. the production company and the distributor Orion Pictures, settled out of court for an undisclosed sum and then added a credit to the film, which acknowledged Ellison's work. So he won. Um, this isn't just on the James Cameron front. Now, James Cameron is a great director, he made one of my favorite films of all time, Aliens, which is apparently an allegory for the Vietnam War, which as a child I didn't get. I was just like, holy shit, this film's amazing. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. Not um, a child. I yeah. Have no idea. <laughs> apparently, yeah, because like these like overconfident American soldiers go in undermanned and underprepared and they face this like enemy that comes from everywhere and there's just wave after wave of them and they just can't stop them and they don't know what to do and they panic and they essentially lose but get out with their lives sort of thing. So that's uh, like people have been like, oh, it's the Vietnam War. Yeah, um, that tracks. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of, James Cameron, I like his work. I don't particularly like his attitude. He's he's kind of an asshole. Um, I, I have sympathy for him on the set of Aliens because the British crew were not great to work with. They were like, oh, 15 minutes, time for a tea break. And he's like, you do this four times a fucking hour. Can we get to work, please? Um, but yeah, James Cameron does like to pinch from people like i'm going to take inspiration from harlan ellison is basically you take the entire plot of your breakthrough film right yeah two of harlan ellison's works and for anyone out there who is a prog rock fan because my dad is a huge like yes and jethro tull fan okay loves them if you ever see album art covers um of yes the band like a prog rock band um, the check out the album covers and the album artwork. It bears a striking resemblance to pretty much everything that you see in Avatar. And yeah, if you check out the artist who's behind the covers, because he's produced like loads of books over the years of his works, those books are basically the storyboard for Avatar. And he sued he sued James Cameron. He didn't win, but if you look at them, like there's so many like floating things and like and it's like it's so similar i'm like he definitely pinched them see that's messed up too because he's probably like well you should be flattered i was influenced yeah. by you no fucker, yeah. you put the story and you put it together and you made some shit i know and like if you're influenced by mm. someone and you acknowledge that that's fine you just kind of chuck him a credit and a bit of pay you know that's yeah, I, I think outright stealing someone's work and then giving them a credit afterwards because they threatened to sue you is a bit much. So James Cameron, one of the greatest film directors of all time, bit of a prick, sometimes potentially steals things. Anyway, 
moving on james we love you please don't sue us we haven't got any money um, <laughs> um cameron objected to this acknowledgement and has since labeled hull and ellison's claim a nuisance suit which i don't think it is i think it's pretty legitimate as a, a claim against um some accounts of the settlement state that another outer worlds uh, outer limits episode written by ellison demon with a glass hand 1964 um, was also claimed to have been plagiarized by the film, but Ellison stated that the Terminator was not stolen from uh, Demon with a Glass Hand. It was a ripoff of my other Outer Limits script, Soldier. He's like, he's making sure. Um, this is this is a cool lawsuit. This is one of the better ones. In 1983, Marvel Comics released The Incredible Hulk number 286, entitled Hero, written by Bill Mantelo. Three issues later, Marvel put up a letter claiming that Mantelo adapted Soldier for use as a Hulk story, but they forgot to credit Ellison and had to uh, had it pointed out by readers. Um, so, yeah. Um, in actuality, then-editor-in-chief Jim Shooter signed off on the story, not having seen the Outer Limits episode it was based on and not realizing that Mantelo had deliberately copied it wholesale just plagiarized the shit out of that wow um, uh yeah exactly the day the issues yeah. went to stands um he was contacted by contacted by a raging Alan ellison who calmed down when shooter immediately realized the error and admitted it although he could have claimed hundreds of thousands of dollars in damages which Alan ellison kind of liked to do i think he must have remembered his his comic writing roots because he only requested the same payment that Mantelo got for the story. So he was like, just give me a writer's fee, which certainly not in the hundreds of thousands of dollars territory for Marvel in the 1980s. Um, and he also said, I want a lifetime subscription to every Marvel publication. Hey, that's so, legit. That's kind that of a is, cool settlement. <laughs> that's a really, like, as far as, like, like if you find, <laughs> I always feel like if you get into a settlement, like, you find... Um, like you go to a, a chain, a food place, and you find like a, I don't know, say a human finger or some horrible <sighs> shit in your food. You'd be like, yeah, I'll see you. Um, maybe give me free. Th uh, like I know you've been put off by the food, but like give me free food for life. I'd, I'd probably take that over like a financial settlement, to be honest. Well, yeah. What are the odds you're going to get another finger? I know. Exactly. I would hope um, pretty low. <laughs> it's, it, yeah. It's, so it's kind of cute of Holland Ellison, but also a part of me is like, there's no way he's been this benevolent for no reason. I feel like he got that subscription because part of him was probably reading literally every single story that they published and thinking, hmm, I wonder if I can sue for this. I wonder if this is similar to my story. To be fair, he should have to look after them after catching them straight oh, out. Yeah. So. Fuck yeah. Yeah, at that, that, that point, yeah, you never know who's going to rip off your work, really. Um, on April 24th, 2000, Ellison sued Stephen Roberts for posting four stories in the news group alt.binaries.ebook without authorization, so basically a fan forum. Uh, the other defendants were, AOL, uh, were AOL and Remark, so Remark Q, um, an internet hmm. service provider who owned servers hosting the news group. Ellison alleged that he had uh, failed to halt copyright infringement in accordance with the notice and takedown procedure outlined in the 1998 Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Robertson and Remark first settled with Ellison and then AOL likewise settled with Ellison in June 2004 under conditions that were not made public. Since those settlements, Ellison initiated action or takedown notices 
against more than 240 people who have allegedly distributed his writing on the internet, saying, if you put your hand in my pocket, you're dragging back six inches of bloody stump. Okay, that's violent. <laughs> He's like a violent Lars Ulrich, but for Basically, writing. Basically, yeah. I will sue you. I don't care how how poor you are. I'm taking you to court. And that's the last thing. I mean, he died in 2014. That is the life of Harlan Ellison. And, I mean, another one of my favorites to research and write because he's so idiosyncratic and enigmatic. It's a bit like, you know... Um, um oh god who did we cover um rick james it reminds oh. me a little bit of rick james you know there's the the story is so fantastical you can't honestly believe it's true but it is right um, yeah so, i don't know so I kinda, he of... feels like sheldon to me from big bang theory a little just... bit yeah there's like sheldon johnny rotten from the sex pistols um like uh, i i, I can't, mike tyson there's a, a bit, bit of sam tyson innocent in there, in there. yes Sam Kinison for sure. <laughs> My God, like the righteous indignation of like a Sam Kinison, um, and like who's the who's the other famous comedian from that age who kind of oh. predated Sam Kinison? He died of cancer, I think, very very young. What's his name mm. Bill. Anyway, he's basically every rebellious spirit you can think combined with this incredible talent for story making and the most poetic insults any human being has ever come up in in history so I, i'd like your opinion on harlan ellison i'm glad i could surprise you with this one actually oh yeah it was awesome and yeah. i feel stupid uh not no, knowing the name but like at least i know the work at least mm. i recognize some of it and yeah God, I don't know. I like him. I like him a yeah, lot. Yeah, I do too. I kind of just wanted to tell the story because, like, he is an idiot in a certain sense. Like, he just can't stop suing people. He can't stop getting divorced. He just constantly gets into fights. But he is this remarkable artist who, to this, to his dying day, was sending published works back to his fucking lecturer in university. So. See, and uh, yeah, yeah, I feel like he was just a, a misunderstood, heartbroken, mm. depressed violent yeah. awesome writer guy that i wish that i could be like <laughs> i know um the notoriety for his works is it's it's kind of one of those things i'm really pleased that he was alive to see the kind of the stature that his works had been kind of put in because so many great writers and artists don't always see how influential they become you know we talk about vincent van gogh or, or like hp lovecraft to a certain right. extent as well like the influence these people had or have after their life is immense almost immeasurable like they influence entire genres of artistry and harlan ellison was lucky enough to see that come to fruition you know one of his best mates was the guy who created babylon 5 who no doubt was influenced by these terrifying stories that he wrote when he was you know a, a young angry writer or a, a different angry writer so <laughs> yeah well, so what's your take ah uh, i i honestly i don't even know Mm. where i should put him on the rating i mean yeah yeah just i don't know i respect a, an honest mm. asshole yes um, and he was so man i i don't want to hurt your feelings here either and no i don't mind low. low scores i'm all about the story <laughs> well i think the story is high so for the marks yeah. on the story i loved learning about uh uh why am i drawing a blank allison 
Holland Ellison, yeah. Holland Ellison. And just for that, that's a high score. But as far as him being an idiot, he was an asshole yeah. and a super talented writer. Yeah. And wrote amazing things. And for that, uh, I'll go a 65. Yeah. I, I'm I'm happy with a 65. I kind of um I, I want him included on here because um, there's the potential that Holland Ellison had he been maybe more agreeable, maybe he would have seen more success. But then at the same time, you think if he'd be more agreeable and seen more success, would we have gotten the kind of the fiery creation of the work that we get? Because there's something about remaining slightly under the radar that you can create intense, completely personal stories and, and artistry that you maybe can't do if you've got the glare of a giant publisher or a giant movie studio on you. You know, yeah, if so. you if you get the the bastardized version of your story that yeah. is, uh, I don't know if you're watching the the offer about the making of the Godfather and stuff, but there's an ending stack that's on Paramount. Uh, Paramount. I want to watch that. It's it's awesome. It's an amazing series wow. on the making of the Godfather and that whole okay. story and and the connections there. But um. I don't know where the hell I was going with that. I just wandered right off in the middle Mario of talking. Puzo, I was maybe was it the writer of the Godfather books, Mario Puzo? Was it something to do with his work? Maybe. Nah. Uh, uh, never mind. <laughs> anyway, no, I, 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 I'll, I'll, I'll happily take a recommendation because we've just finished a documentary called "Keep Sweet, Pray," and something about. Uh, oh yeah, Netflix. Um, it's about the this Mormon, not Mormon. What's in Utah? Mormons. Are they Mormons? Are they okay? Okay. So it's like an offshoot of the Mormons who kept the thing about um, polygamy. Oh yeah, that's yeah, uh, they... Warren Jeffs in them. Warren Jeffs. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. So there's a documentary about that. I knew nothing. I mean, I knew about like Mormons, and I knew about the peripheral thing. Like years ago, they were okay with polygamy and stuff. I had no idea about this offshoot and how fucking horrible they were. It's basically North Korea. This guy creates North Korea in Texas. Uh, you know? Yikes. Crazy. Good grief. So, uh, yeah, watch that. Now I feel like an asshole. When I was younger, I played in a band called Born in the Jeffs, and it was based on that dick. Oh, okay. Well, watch this documentary. <laughs> People do stuff. When I was, when I was younger, I was in a, a, a band called Vince and the Quang Chow, and that was purely because we had a guy from uh, Canada called Vince, and me, him, and the other guys from the band always used to eat in the Quang Chow. So we were called Vince and the Quang Chow. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, yeah, I don't feel too bad. I think everyone does stuff like that when they're a kid. But um, yeah, definitely um, get out and watch that documentary. North Korea and Texas is just Texas. That is not true. Texas is nice, except some parts where, oh. you know, they're, they're a bit angry. Anyway, um, yeah. So let's leave Texas alone. I know a lot of Texans, they're, they're all wonderful, lovely people. I also know some Texans who are hardcore Republicans. We won't go there. Um, I so, just know it takes forever to drive through. It does. I had a piece of shit car like that as well. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the response people say. Uh, when you're in Texas and you drive, you just keep on driving. It's like, yeah, I had a piece of shit car like that one time as well. Um, so, yeah, that's Holland Ellison, um, one of the angriest human beings in history, um, but also one of the most influential authors of the last 50 years probably um oh yeah certainly in terms of popular culture references and um sorry who is the guy who owned the sweatshop again uh it's kill sue um and i'm now lee k-i-l-s-o-o-l-e-e -E. kill sue lee that's uh yeah that asshole 
So, three, three, ho- three on the letters. So I guess that's half evil. Yes. I also feel <laughs> like if Kilsu Yi, Lee, uh, sorry, and why am I apologizing? He's in prison. Um, and <laughs> if he'd ever been in a situation where Hall and Ellison had met him and like Hall and Ellison had been aware of the circumstances of what he was doing, I think Hall and Ellison might have beaten him to death. Possibly. Oh. Do you imagine? Because he was all for civil rights. Like, that's one thing. He was a hardcore campaigner. And if he'd seen people basically being kept prisoner in a sweatshop, he'd have murdered the owner. He'd have taken one of them plastic pipes and shoved it right somewhere on that. Pretty much. Yeah. (laughs) God. Now I'm thinking of a a Holland Ellison versus sweatshop owner death match in my head. That that would have been (laughs) me. I'd have definitely been behind ancient, angry Holland Ellison in that fight. My God. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so that's our show uh, for this week. Uh, still no pickle bubble base. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I don't. I don't know what this is. What I don't. Okay, that's okay. Um, I think we just took a shot. Uh, yeah, I. I feel like I dropped <laughs> something. Cheers. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much, guys. So um, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with our next episode. And until then, Derek, would you like to say goodbye? Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thank you, everybody. And we will see you again soon. Take care now. Bye.